If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. On the map, all of the rivers are lined with these plantations named after their owners, Byam, Willoughby, whoever, and all there is there is jungle. That was Matthew Parker talking about a short-lived English colony in South America. The answer for Henry's regime, and Cromwell in particular, is to rewrite history, is to essentially say the papacy, for a thousand years or more, has been a usurper. And that was Adam Morton discussing the dissolution of the monasteries. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Hello and welcome to our fifth podcast of March 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In the mid-17th century, with the British Isles racked by civil war, an English adventurer named Francis Willoughby decided to establish a colony in South America. In what is now Suriname, he created Willoughby Land, a short-lived but radical experiment in imperialism that for a time witnessed a pioneering form of democratic rule. The story of Willoughby Land has been largely overshadowed by Britain's more successful imperial projects until it was revisited by historian and author Matthew Parker, who made it the subject of his latest book. I spoke to Matthew a little while back to find out more about this curious episode. Our story here begins a little bit before the arrival of our eponymous hero in the 17th century. So when do Europeans first become aware of this area of land that's going to become Willoughby land? Well, by the end of the 16th century, the Spanish were pretty well established on the Orinoco River and along what was called the Spanish Main, what's now Venezuela and Colombia. And the Portuguese were established on the Amazon River and in what is now Brazil. But in between these two areas was a stretch of coast about 100, 120 miles long, um, which was known as the Guianas or the Wild Coast. And for various reasons, this patch of South America was almost entirely unexplored and mysterious. And for this reason, it became the repository of all sorts of myths. And perhaps the most powerful myth was the story of El Dorado and the Golden City. The Spanish, of course, had been looking for this all over South America. And in fact, the search for El Dorado had really driven exploration of the continent. And there was one last sort of dark area on the map. And for that reason, El Dorado had to be there. And this position was behind the wild coast, um, inland from the Guianas. And in 1595, Sir Walter Raleigh set off 
to find El Dorado. Now, he didn't actually find it, but he arrived in what is now Suriname and Guyana and was really entranced. He called it the most beautiful place he'd ever seen. And he was convinced that in this area there was more gold than the whole of Peru. And he came back and he wrote a book that became an international bestseller about the beautiful empire of Guianas. And in this book, he actually drew a map showing the position of El Dorado. Uh, now, obviously, there was an enormous amount of wishful thinking. But really, from that moment on, El Dorado fever was gripped Europeans. And so... For the first time, the Wild Coast saw explorers from England, from France, from Holland and from elsewhere. And then we come to the arrival of Francis Willoughby, who's an Englishman. So what takes him over? Why does he decide to found this colony here? Well, I think like like a lot of people um, at this time, I mean, this is the 1650s and England is in a wrecked state. It's the end of the, this devastating civil war. And really, the Guiana, I think, largely thanks to uh, Raleigh's effort, it, it had become a sort of magical place in the English imagination. Milton called it Eden, and uh, the, the only unspoiled place on the world. Raleigh had, had said it hath yet its maidenhead never entered. And Shakespeare himself, his full staff, calls Mistress Page, who is a, a wealthy and sensual woman he intends to seduce, a region of Guiana, all gold and bounty. So this had this magical draw for Europeans. And Willoughby was amongst them. It's slightly more complicated by that. Willoughby, I have to say a little bit about him. He's this fascinatingly sort of contradictory figure. He'd started the Civil War as a parliamentary general, and then he'd switched sides, like a lot of people did, over to the Royalists in 1648, and his estates were sequestered, and he took himself off, as a lot of the Cavaliers did, to the West Indies, to Barbados, having secured a share in the governorship of, of the Caribbean islands. And at this point, really, as after the execution of the king in, in 49, Barbados declares itself loyal to the crown under Willoughby's leadership. So Cromwell sends out a fleet and they, after a long siege, they overcome the royalists in Barbados and they get thrown out. But in the meantime, Willoughby, who's quite an operator, he had prepared a sort of plan B. And in 1650, he'd sent a small party of Englishmen to uh, what is now Suriname. And they'd done a deal with the local indigenous kings uh, and established a small settlement. So when, in 1652, the cavaliers were thrown out of Barbados, they transported themselves to Suriname and established Willoughby land. So how does he manage to populate the colony? How did he get lots of other people to come, to come and live there with him? Well, there was a lot of attractions to Willoughby Land. It was an incredibly unique place in the empire. Unlike the islands of, sort of Barbados and Antigua, who had had this navigation act imposed upon them, which essentially a sort of mercantilist protection system, Suriname was allowed free trade. They could trade whatever they liked. It also had freedom of religion. So, for instance, there was a huge influx of Jewish refugees from Brazil when the Portuguese took it back from the Dutch in 54. And anyone who uh, was a sort of independent free spirit, this was absolutely the place to be. Also, it had immense riches of timber, of dye stuff, and this amazing soil which would grow the finest tobacco and sugar anywhere in the world. So there was serious, serious money to be made, as well as this uh, enticement of personal, religious and commercial freedom. How did the settlers or inhabitants of Willoughby Land get on with the local Amerindians, you maybe we call them, um, who, who lived there anyway? 
It's hard to tell. We don't obviously have anything in the way of sources from the side of the indigenous people. But sort of reading between the lines, they were in awe of Sir Walter Raleigh. He'd become this mythical figure on the coast because when he went there in 1595, um, he had gave his men strict instructions never to take anything from local people without payment and above all, not to mess with the local women who were described as the most beautiful in the world and who really wandered around naked and were and were quite a temptation for the men. But they treated the local people extremely well and they promised to protect them from the Spanish and the Portuguese who were beginning to infringe on their territory in terms of slave raids and sort of other sort of violent incursions. So the, the local people, they thought well of the English. In fact, there was an old uh, prophecy that the English would would rescue the Incas from, from, from the Spanish. So Raleigh had really set the groundwork and and Willoughby himself did a deal, as I said, with the local kings, which involved a payment. And what they did is they, several of the local groupings or tribes um, became allies of the English against their other enemies. Um, and the Europeans ended up sort of calling these two groups Arawaks and Caribs. And the Caribs were supposed to be sort of cannibals and the Arawaks were supposed to be uh, a sort of more tractable people. But in fact, the English allied themselves with the, the fierce Caribs in Suriname. And although there were some disagreements and there were certainly some battles, on the whole, they got along pretty well. And how did they cope with the climate and, and the various other hazards there would be of living in these tropical conditions? Well, reading the few accounts we have, they're sort of overwhelmed with awe at this amazing natural world that they find in Suriname. I mean, to give an example, in uh, Europeans would be used to maybe 100 varieties of tree. In Suriname, there are 800, as well as 1,600 different types of species of birds, and this incredible fecund nature. And people found it overwhelming and, and immensely beautiful. But also, of course, there were dangers there as well. One count has a, a lovely phrase that says, the delights of warm countries are mingled with sharp sources. And what he meant by this was, of course, diseases and the the jungles of Suriname harboured black water and dengue fever, cholera, typhoid, um, all sorts of parasites, um, assassin bugs, sand flies, and of course, some of the most extraordinary creatures, um, tigers, what the English call tigers, were in fact jaguars. The rivers had electric eels. Suriname has the largest ants in the world. It has the largest snakes, anacondas, and some of the most deadly snakes. It has the fur de lance viper, the venom of whose bite has a, has a hematoma toxin that starts to digest your insides. Um, there are some real dangers there as well. But I think the overall impression you get from, from reading the contemporary accounts is that this was the most stunningly beautiful place that anyone had ever seen. And you mentioned how there was a fair amount of religious freedom in Willoughby Land, but there were a number of other sort of political animosities taking place in Europe at the time. Did they also play out in the colony? Did, for example, royalists and parliamentarians manage to get on when they were in this new environment? The story really breaks down into two distinct halves. During the 1650s, um, Cromwell had his hands full with war against Spain, and, and he sort of just left this colony to get on with its business and with its uh, establishing itself and clearing the jungle and building farms and, and, and schools and everything else. And amazingly for the time, they developed a form of democracy. They actually had an elected governor, which is just uh, extraordinary. But then with the restoration in 1660, all of this changed. Willoughby got himself appointed proprietor 
of Suriname, which meant basically he owned the whole place. So the, the planters there who had seen themselves as freeholders suddenly found that they were actually tenants with very few rights. And during the course of the 1650s, the, the immigrants into Suriname had included roundheads as well as cavaliers. But during this rather sort of optimistic and benign period, they'd all got along with the, the business of taming the jungle and of, as I said, establishing their, their farms. But with the return of the king, these animosities became sharper and sharper, partly because there was a new, huge new influx into the colony of people escaping from the Clarendon Code, the, the vicious suppression of nonconformism in the UK, in Britain. So there's this new influx of political and religious radicals into the colony, and we see it become increasingly divided during the early 1660s. And at this kind of time, how much is Francis Willoughby himself actually spending time at the colony? I mean, you said they had an elected governor. Was Willoughby not ruling himself in person then? No, the elected governor was uh, a man called William Byam, who's uh, another of these fascinating larger-than-life characters that populate this story. Willoughby himself, he went there in 52 with a, a boatload of about 300 people, and then he left. He returned to England to plot for the royalist cause during the 1650s. And this is, of course, a time of endless schemes and, and plots of spies and double agents and infiltration of little cliques. Um, and throughout the, the 1650s, 1950s, this is really what Willoughby was up to. And he only returned in the early 1660s to his colony. Uh, and his return was pretty disastrous. First of all, he arrived and found a lot of the planters very concerned about the status of their land ownership uh, and also not happy that the freedoms that they had enjoyed in the 1650s now looked like they were going to disappear. And in fact, one of the planters tried to assassinate Willoughby when he was at his plantation at Parham Hill. He came in during a religious service and um, brought out a hidden cutlass and slashed at Willoughby and Willoughby put his hand up to protect his face and had three of his fingers chopped off. A second blow hit him on the head and, and cracked his skull before the assassin was overpowered and then taken away to be punished in the brutal way that they did in those days. But probably even more importantly, Willoughby, somewhere in his entourage, he bought some sort of virus or some sort of fever. And this soon took hold of the colony. And so within a few months, hundreds had died and the population was um, frightened, shrinking and morale was in free fall. I understand that at some point slavery became a factor in Willoughby land. Why was that introduced and what impact did it have? Well, again, we really can look at it as two halves um, of this period. In the 1650s, there were hardly any enslaved Africans in um, Willoughby land. The work was done by English settlers. And this was really Raleigh's vision for the colony. He, he saw the place as somewhere where um, the unemployed could come from England, trade could be established, um, friendship with the, the local people against Spain could be nurtured. But then... Um, something sort of went wrong. As probably everyone knows, in 1663, um, slavery had its first sort of official sanction from the crown with the establishment of the Company of Royal Adventurers by Charles II and his his brother James, the Duke of York. And this really brought slavery on a sort of industrial scale to the region. Um, thousands were shipped over from West Africa. Now, the demand for slaves was driven by the key crop. In the early 1640s, um, in Barbados, 
sugar had been established and grown and processed successfully for the first time. And sugar made 10 times any other crop. And suddenly the Caribbean became the richest place anywhere in the empire. Now, the sugar, it takes a lot to establish. So it really takes sort of 10 years or so for land to be properly prepared for sugar. But by the 1660s, Suriname was ready to go with this white gold crop, as it was known. Now, the thing about sugar, it's incredibly labor-intensive, unlike tobacco or cotton or the other things that were, were, were being grown beforehand. And the white settlers were found to be just physically not up to it. So the awful decision was made to to grow the crop using imported enslaved Africans. And this really changed everything in the colony. From a place of comradeship and of optimism, it became a place of tyranny, fear and violence. Obviously, as we know, Willoughby Land no longer exists. So at what point does it come to an end and why does that happen? During the 1650s, it wasn't just English people in Willoughby Land. There were French colonies in what is now Cayenne, and there were Dutch colonies in what is now Guyana. And all of these three, even if these powers were antagonistic in Europe or elsewhere in the Caribbean, there was a sort of gentleman's agreement that on the wild coast, where there were so many other things to deal with, the threat of the Spanish, the indigenous people, and the huge challenges of this vast space, meant that the Europeans just sort of rubbed along, okay, and had agreements with each other. But then with, again, the return of the king, the return of Willoughby as proprietor, the outside world basically imposed itself on this rather idyllic scene. And the English were ordered to attack the French and the Dutch. And and so along with the plague that Willoughby had brought in his entourage came war as well. And fighting wars in those days was really about looting and about massacres and was, of course, an immensely destructive force for um, the colonies. Now, Willoughby land itself uh, had, a, had a sort of special story which involves the um, the famous writer Afra Ben, who I think probably most of your listeners will know was the first woman ever to make a living uh, in English from her pen. Um, in fact, Virginia Woolf said that every, every woman writer should lay flowers on her grave because she was the one who earned them the right to speak their minds. And later on in the 1670s, she would be one of the leading restoration dramatists uh, in London. But in 1663, she was 23, she arrived in Suriname as a spy. And her mission was to make contact with a man called William Scott, who was the son of Thomas Scott, who had been Cromwell's spymaster and who, on the Restoration, had found himself arrested uh, and executed. And William Scott was on the run. He had been a roundhead spy and he washed up in Suriname and Afrobem was sent to make contact with him, which he did in a rather unusual way. In fact, they um, almost certainly became lovers. And Afrobem, although a royalist, hated William Byam, the governor and his council, who she thought were the most appalling rogues. And she was also very sympathetic to the plight of the enslaved Africans. And in fact, her her visit to Suriname would inspire her masterpiece, Orinoco, the novella about a African prince who is tricked into slavery and taken to Suriname and, and leads a, a revolt against the, the English authorities. But anyway, she made contact with William Scott with a view really to turning him into a, a double agent because he would be a useful person for Charles 
to spy on the Dutch and also on the roundhead emigres on, on the continent who, who were still a, a serious threat to his restored regime. So anyway, William Byer managed to get Afro Ben thrown out of the colony and William Scott goes after her, but he can't go to England where he's, a, he's wanted for treason. So he goes to Holland and there he goes and talks to the Zealanders. And basically he betrays the colony. He tells them about its serious weaknesses, its low morale, the, the losses from fever, and also the fact that its main defence, Fort Willoughby, was only half built. The Zealanders see, see a chance to get this rich sugar-growing land for themselves, and they send a powerful force, which arrives in mid-1667 uh, in Suriname, attacks Fort Willoughby, and Byam rather hastily surrenders the colony to the Dutch. Now, it was retaken soon afterwards by the English, but by that stage, the English and the Dutch had signed the Treaty of Breda, in which the colony of Suriname was handed to the Dutch in return for what became New York. From this point onwards, what actually happened to the original English and other settlers? Did they, did they return to England? Did they stay on in the new country? Well, the Dutch were very keen. Uh, what, what the English had done, they'd arrived in this, in this beautiful place and... As we've explained, they'd through sugar and slavery, they'd turned it into a gold mine, but also a, a, a terrible place of, of tyranny and violence. But the, that's what the Dutch wanted. They wanted those sugar. So they tried to persuade as many of the English to stay behind as possible to, to work the mills and the, the boiling houses. But most of them left. Byam, for instance, went to Antigua, where he became, he set up a dynasty that became one of the island's most powerful and, and long-lasting. Um, Willoughby himself had died when he was leading a fleet against the French in St. Kitts in 1666, which got hit by a hurricane. Uh, and that was the last anyone saw of Willoughby. But the Dutch very soon established an amazingly rich colony, their richest colony. They'd brought their drainage expertise and all of the coastal lands which the English had, had not been able to do anything with. They built miles and miles of canals and drainage devices, and they produced this incredibly rich agricultural um, place. But at the same time, they imported tens of thousands more slaves until at one point they were outnumbered sort of 20 or 30 to 1. And of course, the only way that this was sustainable was through ever escalating cruelty. So there'd be a rebellion and there'd be the terrible retribution, which would bring another rebellion. And really, it became famous, not only for the opulence of the planter's lifestyle, up to their eyeballs in gin, but also for the appallingly cruel way that the slaves were treated. To such an extent that Voltaire, when he was writing Candide, took his hero to Suriname. And it was there when confronted with a main slave who told him this this is the price we pay for your sugar. That was the moment where Condide finally lost his famous optimism. Nowadays, does Willoughby Land have much legacy in modern Suriname? Are there many physical reminders of this brief period? Well, I went, I went there, which and I have to say it was such an interesting place and strange, very strange, very hot place. And I travelled all over with this map from 1667 sitting on my lap, looking for, for all of these. On the map, the, all of the rivers aligned with these plantations named after their owners, Byam, Willoughby, whoever. And all there is there is jungle. Even the capital city, Tararica, which is some way upriver, where in the English time had maybe a thousand houses, it had a church, it had warehouses, a big harbour. There is nothing there at all. In fact, there was a logging company working.
working there when I was there, cutting down these trees that were maybe 400 years old, that were growing where there had once been a, a town square. So it's incredible how the jungle has really reclaimed all of the endeavours of the English. One area where you can see traces is the Jewish savannah area, which was where this huge Jewish population um, established themselves. And at one point, there was something like a quarter of the white population were, were Jewish. And they had special privileges. They were allowed to build synagogue. They built a synagogue in 1654. And in fact, there was one from a little bit later is still there, all fallen down. And now the site is entirely deserted. But you can see if you go into the, the trees around, there's something like 400 large marble gravestones still there, sort of half overgrown with, with weed. It's a very uncanny and, and ghostly place. But apart from that, and bits of Fort Willoughby, which was renamed Fort Zealandia and still stands, there's no trace at all of what was once England's most promising and hopeful colony. How do you feel this story connects to Britain's wider imperial history? It's a microcosm, really, of the way that colony can start out with the best intentions and then... For various reasons, the hope turns to fear and so optimism turns to exploitation and really misery, I suppose. It's also a, a fascinating sort of pivotal moment. Um, it, it's at that, this time where Europeans are pouring out to the Americas and discovering all these extremely strange places. And the way that they digest this and the way that they come to terms with it. It's a sort of fascinating glimpse of really, in miniature, it's a parable of what was happening throughout the world and throughout the imperial period in terms of the European sort of exotic and unusual places. That was Matthew Parker. Willoughby Land, England's Lost Colony, is available now in both the UK and the US, published by Windmill Books. Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma Mason. A leading Australian university has sparked controversy by telling its students that the arrival of the British in the 18th century should be referred to as a, quote, invasion rather than a settlement. According to the, quote, Indigenous Terminology Guidelines issued by the University of New South Wales, students and staff should describe the British as having, quote, invaded, occupied and colonised to acknowledge that the lands were stolen, often forcibly, from the Aboriginal people, the Telegraph reports. Australia's Daily Telegraph newspaper has accused the university of, quote, whitewashing its curriculum. Captain James Cook claimed possession of the east coast of what is now Australia on behalf of the British Crown in 1770. What is your reaction to the news? Share your views on our Facebook page or by tweeting us at History Extra. In other news, a fragment of a pot from Roman Britain bearing Christian symbols has been discovered in Brentford, West London. The object was originally excavated in 1970 during excavations at Brentford High Street, but there is no record of it being noticed at the time, the Daily Mail reports. Volunteers at the Museum of London's Archaeological Archive made the discovery of the Christian symbol, which is a chi rho, a monogram of chi, x, and rho, p, the first two letters of the Greek Christos Christ. This Christian symbol suggests there were followers of Christ living in Brentford in Roman times. Archaeology collections manager Adam Corsini said, 
Christian symbols from the Roman period are rare, especially from sites within Londinium surrounding Hinterland, which includes modern Brentford, and there are only a few examples within our collections relating to London. Meanwhile, Tudor drama Wolf Hall has secured four nominations for this year's television BAFTAs. The six-part BBC Two adaptation of Hilary Mantel's novels chronicles the rise of Henry VIII's chief minister, Thomas Cromwell. Mark Rylance, who played Cromwell, has been nominated for leading actor, while Claire Foy's performance as Anne Boleyn has earned her a nomination for leading actress. Anton Lesser, who played Thomas More, received a nomination for supporting actor. Wolf Hall has also been nominated for Best Drama. Each month in BBC History magazine, we include an article where we visit a site of historical importance, accompanied by an expert on the subject. For our April edition, we headed over to Fountains Abbey in Yorkshire, which was one of the most high-profile victims of Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries in the mid-16th century. Alongside our reporter, Nige Tassel, was Dr Adam Morton of Newcastle University. Let's hear how they got on. What was Henry VIII's relationship with, like with the Catholic Church and with Rome in the early years of his reign? Uh, well, in, in, on balance, it's, it's very, very favourable until the, uh, the problem with Catherine of Aragon. I mean, the medieval church has always had a strained relationship with um, monarchs across Europe, but that's a kind of background feature uh, of the medieval period. And those clashes usually feature over power and over the right to appoint bishops or other, or other clerics. So they're, they're sort of routine strains. But Henry's relationship with the papacy has actually been very, very strong, particularly with um, the Medici popes. So Leo X has applauded Henry's kingship, Clement VII before the divorce, has viewed Henry with, with particular favour. In fact, Henry's been made defender of the faith in 1524 for services really against um, Martin Luther, the first Protestant. And in 1527, he's, he sent the Pope 30,000 ducats to help with warfare. So this is a, a very, very promising relationship. But then we come across the problem with Catherine of Aragon and the, Aragon and the, the annulment. Mm -hmm. So what extent could you see his subsequent actions mm -hmm. as an angry Henry who's trying to seek revenge against Rome? Yeah, I think, I think that that's, that's a, a, a kind of question that, that often comes up. Um, I think revenge is, is a difficult thing. It makes... There's a danger of, of seeing Henry as a kind of stage villain. Really, the, the, what the dissolution is, above all else, is, is an exertion of power. So Henry now has this, this new type of kingship. The royal supremacy makes him head of church and state. And there's no better demonstration of that than dissolving the monasteries. So the idea that actually that policy itself or any other Henrician policy is a preordained plan driven by something like revenge is, is difficult to sustain. The more we know about Henry's reign, the more things seem to be done in a very short-term uh, reactionary way. Policy seems to be developed on the run. And initially, the dissolution is really about reform. So Wolseley has dissolved a few monasteries in the 1520s. The papacy has granted permission to do this before. So dissolution is not on this scale, obviously, but part of the way in which inefficient monasteries are actually um, closed down. So in essence, the language at first is about reform. So to seem as sort of Machiavellian, I think it is difficult, but there are a range of factors which contribute to it. So I think firstly, there's been a series of, of Christian humanist movements within the Catholic Church, which criticize monasticism as being either um, outside the world where Christianity should be vibrant and involving the spirit, and also too material, focusing on relics, focusing on pilgrimages, rather than actually 
a sort of contemplative element of Christianity for the laity. Secondly, of course, as we know, um, there are people who we will later call Protestants, but at this stage we should really call evangelicals who see monasticism as being fundamentally superstitious or, or unscriptural. But what really, I think, seals the monastery's fate in, in, in Henry's eyes is actually that an awful lot of the support for Catherine of Aragon and then the initial resistance to the royal supremacy comes from monastic houses. So they are a problem, or some of them are a problem to that extent, and getting rid of them is a good way of, of shoring up Henry's own power. Now, 20-odd years into his reign, mm -hmm. uh, Henry's cash reserves, his inheritance from his dad, yep. are dwindling somewhat, whereas mm -hmm. the monasteries are pretty cash-rich. Yep. So is it, is it reasonable to think that the attack on the monasteries is also financially led? It's, it's certainly a factor, but we think we, ha we have to be careful, again, in... in, in in overstating it or seeing any of this as monocausal. So accusing the monasteries of avarice or of accusing them of hypocrisy, you know, preaching charity whilst being very, very rich, is certainly part of the polemical strategy to, uh, to downgrade them in the eyes of the populace or parliament. But there's a danger of, again, of mistaking that polemic for reality. So we know in hindsight that the, the asset coup for the Tudor crown is, is significant in, in increasing power and increasing wealth, um, you know, particularly in terms of land holding. But there's a danger of, of confusing effects with cause. So removing the Pope as head of the church, as Henry does in 1533-4, raises the question of the, that church's structure and hierarchy. So we're in a, a brave new world. And it also raises the question of wealth and the ownership of land, the ownership of assets. So these are things that inevitably have to be discussed. So in 1534, the taxes which the clergy would pay to the papacy are recouped by Henry, for instance. And Actually, so you could see the dissolution in that sense as part of that restructuring rather than necessarily um, just driven by a, a cash grab. And secondly, we have to consider how Henry sees himself. So it's, again, it's very, very easy for us to see him as greedy. It's very, very easy for us to see him as um, you know, avaricious or driven by um, a sort of irrational revenge. But he also sees himself as an Old Testament monarch. So he sees his break from Rome you know, rightly or wrongly, as biblical, as the kind of the way in which a king should be. So he often describes himself as King David or King Hezekiah. And what all those Old Testament kings were, were iconoclasts. What do iconoclasts do? They break superstition and they deliver the word to their people. So Henry, as we know more about him, seems to be in many ways a pious figure, a contradictory figure, but a pious figure nonetheless. So he, his own motivations are much... Um, more complex than, than, than pure revenge or pure avarice alone. Um, and he charges Thomas Cromwell yep. to enact the dissolution in the monasteries and being the great spin doctor that he mm -hmm. is, he, he kind of suggests to the English public that the money that the monasteries have is just going to Rome rather than staying within the country and mm -hmm. how we should have that money. Can you expand on, on Cromwell's role? So Cromwell is, is, is a really elusive figure. I mean, the, 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 the jury, there's, there's been endless debate about Cromwell and the jury, to much extent, is, is still out. Was he broadly the, the architect of Henrician policy in the 1530s or was he simply a very effective administrator who does his master's will? We don't really know. But the case for his involvement is strongest. The evidence, I think, is strongest during the dissolution. And I think that's largely because what we do know about Cromwell is he has evangelical leanings. So it's clear this is a particular bugbear for him. So that the line about money leaving the realm for Rome is really part of a, a kind of wider strategy in polemic that we have to think about when we consider this break from Rome. How do you sell the break from Rome to the people? This is unprecedented. And if it's unprecedented, 
How can it not be heretical? How can it not be wrong? So the answer for Henry's regime and Cromwell in particular is to rewrite history, is to essentially say the papacy for a thousand years or more has been a usurper. It's usurped the powers of kings across Europe. It's claimed the ability to make appointments, to run the church in lands when actually the Bible or other forms of law state clearly that a king should be the supreme head. So you claim that the papacy is the usurper here and all Henry is doing as a result of this is actually giving people their own power back. He's giving England its rightful power back. So claiming that the papacy is usurping um, power is matched by this more practical claim that it's, it's usurping money. So we have to see it within that wider strategy. So m money is the easiest, um, the easiest way to sell that to people. How were the, the plans to dissolve the monasteries announced to the public and mm -hmm. what was their reaction? You know, obviously the money question would have, mm -hmm. would have, would have helped the persuasion. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a popular policy and we have to be clear about that. You know, the, the royal supremacy isn't a popular policy and the dissolution certainly isn't. So what we have to think about the monasteries, you know, as we stand there at Fountains Abbey, or you can see the, the, the sheer size of the buildings. You know, even someone who wasn't particularly pious in, in the 16th century, the monasteries are involved in your life on, on a day-to-day -day basis. So aside from their religious function, they are a seat of learning, they're the main provision of hospitality for travellers, they are hospitals. So actually losing them is a social and, a, and cultural problem as much as a religious one. There are emotional ties here. The monastery may be your landlord, it may control your parish, for instance. So early modern people generally don't like novelty. They don't like change. So something as really as violent as this, as, as destructive as this, is very, very hard to sell to them. And the policy to do that is, is decidedly confused. The, the dissolution un unfolds over a five-year period, really from 1535 to 1540. The, the policy, the direction of policy, isn't clear throughout that time evolves on the run, it reacts to changes. So the initial program really is to, is to think about the smaller religious houses. And the aim here is to, to, to sell this at least as, you know, we're closing down the monasteries that don't run efficiently, that can't actually do what they claim to do for society, and we're closing down those that are immoral. So whether we buy, whether we accept that this is a reformist policy or not, we start with the smaller ones. It's actually easy to sell that to the populace by claiming we're only attacking monasteries which are failing. We're only attacking monasteries with, where the monks are particularly immoral. So you start with that stage in 1536. So what would have happened on the ground here? How would this monastery have been dissolved effectively? So it's very, very difficult actually legally to push this through. So in terms of you know, the abbots and the monks, what they would have experienced fundamentally is a huge exertion of pressure. This is, in one sense, a, a psychological strain that they're placed under because their obedience is being questioned. Do you accept the royal supremacy? If you don't accept the royal supremacy, does that mean you're seditious? Does it mean you're a traitor? So Cromwell and those who work for him constantly visit. They call people to interviews. They exert pressure in that way. They publicly demand loyalty. So in the early stages of closure, what the Crown is doing essentially is proceeding opportunistically. It's looking for those monasteries where the resistance isn't going to be most acute. Um, and it's pushing really a, a policy of voluntary surrender, getting the abbot to surrender 
the monastery to the crown. And it's really from 1538 when the, the second stage of the dissolution kicks in, when they decide actually to, to close all monasteries. The pressure is really stepped up with the appointment of a man called uh, Richard Ingworth, who becomes a commissioner for the four uh, orders of friars. And it's clear he's a you know particularly effective administrator. And he essentially closes a lot of these monasteries without the sanction of parliament. A lot of the larger monasteries are closed before parliament's bill to do so has actually passed. What was the Valor Ecclesiasticus? Okay. And what, what can you tell me about that and how important at all it was? So this is essentially a commission to investigate the wealth of the monasteries. And this starts in 1535-6, the Cromwell issues. In many ways, historians are very, very glad it was done because it's such a, it tells us such a huge amount about the medieval church and the Tudors regime. I mean, the, the ability to commission a report of that size tells us something about Henry's kind of will for royal supremacy. And this is a huge undertaking. So it's essentially a long account of how wealthy the monasteries are and also containing examples of where they're failing in their order, where they're, where they're failing in their oaths, and also providing examples of immorality. And for Cromwell, that's particularly op opportunistic because when it comes to parliament, when it comes to persuading the population that these places should be closed, what you do is, and it's a, it's a typical technique of, of politics, is to make the exceptional seem the norm. So you find the, the juiciest stories, the juiciest examples of corruption, and you say, look, these people are all like this. So it provides them with a series of evidence that they can manipulate. And what kind of power did individual locations, maybe mm -hmm. like fountains or, or any others, have to, to hold off the will mm -hmm. of Henry and Cromwell? Well, in one sense, it, it, it depends on the nerve of the abbot and the monks in question. So there are attempts to delay things. You know, I need more time to consider the royal supremacy. Attempts to obfuscate things. And, the, you know, the, the more educated, the more, the more um, confident, you might say, can actually play on, is this technically legal? And they can also play on how unprecedented things are. So you can try to garner local support to delay this. And the main question here that, that Henry's regime has to confront is, you know, does the state actually have the power to do this? You know, who owns the monasteries? So there's this sticky issue, very, very complex legal issue of founders' rights. Obviously, at some point, someone left money in their will to found a monastery. Who now owns those rights? And does the state have the right to ride roughshod over them? So there are strategies that can be deployed to do that, which is why, really, that psychological pressure I mentioned before is so important, because what Cromwell and others are doing is essentially trying to get around that by forcing people to give them up. And once the bill was enacted in 1536, some monasteries were closed, but others were yeah. permitted to stay open as long as they, they paid mm -hmm. for the privilege, really. So what, what would have decided that? Well, really, this is one area where the, where the records aren't particularly good. So, so estimates of monasteries that survive the initial purge in 1536 for the smaller houses estimate from, from a half to a quarter. I think a quarter is more likely. And the reasons for those survivals are not always cited, but there are a number of factors at work. So firstly, how much opposition to Henry and the royal supremacy has come from a given order is significant in, in terms of how steely the glare they come under is. Secondly, you know, who is their advocate at court? If you have a powerful advocate in, in Henry's ear, this can make a difference. And I think much more pragmatically, who's going to be annoyed? Who's going to have their nose put out of joint if a given monastery is closed? So if a bishop's lands are attached to a monastery, this might be a problem. So powerful voices at court are still seeing merit in the monasteries. The dissolution is not a kind of universally accepted policy. Um, so, for example, uh, Lord Chancellor Audley pleaded uh, for St John's at Colchester, and he stresses actually, you know, the monastery here is, is providing this vital needs of hospitality, this vital needs of charity that will 
impact the community if it goes. And the policy, even in 1536, isn't that clear. In, in 1537, Henry himself refounds the Abbey of Chertsey at Bisham. So again, things are developing on the run. It's not set out in 1534. The next stage is, is to absolve all these things. Up here in the north of England, yep. uh, we have the Pilgrimage of Grace, this, mm -hmm. this open descent to what, what was going on, both philosophically, mm -hmm. but also the physical dismantling of buildings, leaving places like fountains mm -hmm. here in, in ruins. What can you tell me about that and why, why was it specifically to the north and, and not necessarily nationwide? So really, I mean, the, the, there is a case to be made that the Pilgrimage of Grace is the most significant rebellion in England, at least, that the Tudor monarchs face. Um, and I think that the reason you can make that case is the sheer size of it. So estimates range that between 30 to 50,000 people are involved. And the fact that it, in the first instance, at least, Henry is forced to negotiate, so he essentially has to placate the rebels. He pretends he's going to, you know, call a parliament at York and, and answer their demands is an indication that really he, he doesn't have the resources to, to solve this. There isn't a standing army in the 16th century. So in essence, the state doesn't have the power to, to deal with that many people. And the reason that that pilgrimage happens, what you really get here is a sense of, of moral outrage. So the population is concerned about the direction in which things are going. So as I've said, this is unprecedented. It seems paradoxical. How can a king who isn't a priest be head of the church. Is this this newfangled heresy, i.e. Protestantism, which we've heard so much about from the continent? And it's also a sense of just how shocking it must have been to people to actually see this is sacred land, these are sacred places, this is where the sacred and the profane meet. So to demolish that, to attack that, must have seemed deeply shocking. So there are, there are multiple points of complaint from, from the, 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 the pilgrims. Firstly, you know, monasteries are a mainstay of the service of purgatory. So they're worried about the souls of their dead loved ones in the afterlife. And also social and economic concerns. You get a sense here really in, in the sources for the pilgrimage, which are very rich, of the vital roles that a monastery plays in, in local life, in charity and education, and also as a landlord. So really the, the response is emotional above everything else. It's a sense of, of loss. What we have to understand about, about rebellions in this period, you know, the 16th and the early 17th century, is that Fundamentally, they are conservative. So we think of rebellion, we think of popular revolt or popular politics in a very 19th or 20th century way as, as being about pushing for change. And actually, rebellion in this period is almost always triggered by a breach of custom by the state, by doing something unprecedented. So these are people who rebel against change. They want things to go back. So it's that breach of custom that makes them so offensive. And I think the reason we can see it's a, a kind of northern issue is above all else, to do with the nature of the state in the 16th century. So the 16th, 17th and 18th century is, is part of a much longer term narrative by which the state becomes something modern, and I mean modern in inverted commas, something autonomous, something with power spanning equally across all parts of the kingdom. In the 16th century, that has not yet happened. So the land barons in the north are typically slightly more independent than those in the south, if we paint in broad brushstrokes. Communications networks are not what they are today, obviously. Um, so there is a sense of which the king is further away. The state seems further away to these people. That's not to say that there isn't dissent elsewhere. It's just that dissent doesn't manifest itself in that necessary overt rebellion. Okay. How would Henry have dealt with the, the more vocal dissenters? So really, I think, I mean, at the end of the pilgrimage, he deals with it exceptionally brutally. Once he's placated them, and many of the rebels have started to go home, he convinces Robert Ask that he's going to address these things. Other parts of the rebels are not convinced 
and they start to rebel again, which gives Henry the, the opportunity really to, to crush it brutally. It's a, it's a huge display of his displeasure and, and his power. There are, there are a series of very, very public executions, mass executions, that let people know this is the way my, my kingship works. This is royal supremacy. And over the course of the four years, more than 800 monasteries were dissolved. Mm -hmm. The reasons for it aside, it's a pretty effective campaign, isn't it? It was brutal and effective. Yeah, so I suppose the, the, the um, uh, playing devil's advocate, it depends what you mean by, by effective. So it's th certainly very, very, very thorough. And it has a substantial effects on religious culture. So it's clear that no one in England really wants a reformation. The numbers of Protestants, or people who will be later called Protestants in the 1520s, are very, very few. And the pre-Reformation church, the Catholic church, is deeply popular. So although there isn't necessarily a popular movement for reform, you have to question, what's the effect on, on people's belief of seeing this happen? If you believe this place is genuinely sacred, genuinely holy, and the king breaks it, does that raise doubts in your mind that maybe some of these new currents of thought you're hearing have something to them? What's the effect of witnessing something like this fall? And secondly, it clearly has a, a huge effect on, on society more broadly. You know, again, the, the provision of charity changes, provision of education changes. Your landlord may change as a result of this. So there are significant changes at a local level. Many people would say this, this creates some kind of social revolution in the long term by allowing different types of people to sort of move up the social ladder by buying the land, which becomes available as a result of dissolution. What it's not effective in doing is making Henry popular. It's clearly a very, very effective display of his power. No one could doubt that this is a strong king, um, that the state seems to have more ability to intervene into people's lives in the localities than it has done in recent memory. It's a vehement display of royal power. If you believe that Henry is, is an Old Testament king, or he thinks he's an Old Testament king, it's, it's the ultimate display of that. Finally, had he not had the split with Rome and, mm -hmm. and gone down the path of the dissolution, the subsequent generations of English mm -hmm. life would have been quite different, wouldn't they? Yep. How, how so? Well, hugely. I mean, it's very, very difficult. Count, counterfactuals are very, very difficult, but this combination of church and state in the figure of the king or the figure of the monarch creates, you know, vastly increases royal power. Obviously, the, the king has the ability to appoint bishops. Uh, the monarchy now has far more land and therefore directly more patronage and therefore more power. But it also creates a series of responsibilities for that crown which uh, destable it in many ways from Elizabeth's reign onward. You know, the crown now has the duty to provide for the souls of its population. And if you are a type of Protestant or a, or a Catholic that doesn't accept the policy of the Church of England in Elizabeth's reign or James' reign or Charles' reign, actually you begin to question the right of that power. So it, it enhances power and destabilizes it at the same time. So the Tudors and Stuarts have to wrestle with that. It's also clear that the break from Rome creates the context in which the Reformation happens. So there's no sense in which we can really call Henry a Protestant king. You know, fundamentally, he dislikes justification by faith alone, which is the central Protestant doctrine. And his adherence to the mass is persistent um, throughout the reign. But the ability for a monarch to be head of the church creates the context for Protestantism to develop under Edward and then Elizabeth. So this is a huge moment in English history in the longer term. Without that break from Rome and without, you know, potentially the dissolution of the monasteries, it seems clear actually that England would have remained a Catholic country. Protestantism was such an important part of national identity in the 17th, 18th, 19th and early 20th centuries that that's actually a, a more forgotten part of, of, of public memory. But 
But actually, there isn't a stomach for reform amongst the people. The Catholic Church is very, very popular. And by breaking one of its central pillars of the monasteries, Henry makes it, in the longer term, more open to change. It's a factor. It's not, it's not a cause of the Reformation, but it's, it's a factor of its coming. That was Nige Tassel and Dr Adam Morton. You can read more from them in our April issue. Also in this month's magazine, we're taking an in-depth look at Shakespeare and his histories as we approach the 400th anniversary of the playwright's death. Plus, we have articles on ancient Rome, an Anglo-Saxon warrior king, and the sad fate of Catherine Howard. Look out for our April edition now in all good news agents in the UK and in our many digital formats. Now, it does take a little longer for the magazine to make it outside the UK, so in many other countries it will still be our March edition that's in the shops. And this month we're offering some special bonus content for some of our overseas readers. If you pick up a copy of the magazine in Barnes & Noble in the US, you'll have a chance to read an extra article about the 10 days that forged the United States. Meanwhile, if you buy your magazine at a store in Australia, you'll get an additional article on the great myths of convict transportation. So if either of those sound of interest to you, then make sure to seek out our March edition now. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time when we'll be chatting about Charles II and the bizarre 19th century botanical experiment. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.